Okay, intro. So this is um, me reading through the Paediatric Immediate Life Support Manual and I'm not actually going to document absolutely everything it says um, because it's extremely similar to ALS um, but there are some essential differences to allow for the little people and in true paediatric um, adages I'm going to say remember children aren't just little adults. Um, and so there are lots of important differences um, and that further sub-segments when you talk about the difference between infants and children, um, which I go into. So um, they come in lots of different sizes and, there are in, and their weight is extreme. Knowing, just getting a general feel for their weight and doing a basic calculation will inform all aspects of management. Um, so... Uh, essentially this isn't a comprehensive intermediate life support um, you know podcast on the manual it's just a documentation of the essential differences between PILS and ALS so um, hopefully it will be helpful and quick okay Okay, so this is um, paediatric life support and we're on chapter one. There are ten chapters altogether. Eight of them are, I feel like, are directly relevant to the practical course. So I'm going to do a podcast for each chapter. So first chapter um, opens with cardiorespiratory arrest, primary cardiorespiratory arrest and secondary. Um, adults die primarily from primary and children tend to die from secondary so adults, uh, the most common primary cause of cardiorespiratory arrest is a fatal arrhythmia. Uh, it tends to be VF or pulseless VT. And for every minute lost, um, you can expect a 10% increase in mortality. Um, in children, it tends to be a secondary cardiorespiratory arrest, um, usually due to another concurrent illness, um, mostly hypoxia. Um, so what tends to happen is you have a compensated respiratory failure, then a decompensated respiratory failure, and then you go into cardiorespiratory failure, and then um, cardiorespiratory arrest, and then death, unless there's an intervention. Um, our hospital, obviously, the... The chance of survival a lot less and in hospital cardiac arrest um, is a lot more but then a lot of these patients go on to die from multi-organ failure um, later on so just a few stats so um, for the outcome of secondary cardiorespiratory arrest um, out of hospital you can expect a maximum survival rate of between 4.5 and 7.6 so let's call it 7% survival rate um, and less than 5% of children will survive without neurological problems in hospital is much better um, you 40% of children will survive to discharge um, if you just have respiratory arrest without cardio cardiac arrest then um, nine, up to 90% um, can reach long-term survival. So now we're going to talk about the anatomical and physiological considerations in children.
Okay, this is still chapter one and we're going to talk about airway breathing, circulation, disability and exposure. Um, the airways in children are so different to that of adults. Um, the infant's head is large um, and the occiput tends to be protuberant. Um, so the head flexes, um, the tissue is soft, so it's quite easy to have an airway obstruction uh, when the consciousness level is reduced in the child. Um, as the child ages it becomes smaller in relation to their thorax and the neck lengthens and the larynx becomes more resistant to external pressure so you're less likely to get a flexed head compressing soft tissues causing a, an obstruction um, so that's the head and neck now the face is different you've got um, different size masks um, sizing is very important apparently pressure on the eyes can lead to a reflex bradycardia and obviously eye damage uh, I want to check that one out so inside a very small mouth is a very large tongue um, and also a very floppy epiglottis um, but yeah so first of all the tongue is more likely to obstruct um, in the unconscious child the floor of the mouth is soft um, so when you're doing airway maneuvers you have to take care not to compress that soft floor of the mouth, um, which can cause an obstruction as well. The nose and the pharynx. So um, children are obligate nasal breathers. So there's a, mm, I think that's wrong. I shouldn't say obligate. The infant is a preferential nasal breather for the first six months of life. Um, so nasal obstruction, so any anatomical problems um or too many secretions or a nasal gastric tube or tape can lead to increased work of breathing and compromise respiratory respiration um so that's interesting isn't it whereas you would put a nasal gas nasal gastric nasopharynx uh, mp tube in an adult in a infant this could make increased work of breathing and cause a respiratory situation um, the larynx, again, the epiglottis, as I mentioned earlier, is floppier in adult than in adults. Um, that means it's vulnerable to damage by airway devices and manoeuvres. The larynx um, in a child is higher. Um, uh, the, the level of the larynx is C5, C6 in an adult, um, but it's higher. The larynx is higher in infants. Um, until about eight years old, the child's larynx is a funnel-shaped. So it's not like a cylinder that goes all the way down. Um, it's a funnel. And if you think about obstructions, things get stuck in funnels at the narrowest point. And the narrowest point is at the cricoid cartilage, um, as opposed to older children who have the larynx that is cylindrical in shape. Okay, so why is this important? Well, a blind finger sweep to remove a foreign object could turn a partial airway obstruction into a full airway obstruction. Um, so avoid blind finger sweeps. The large tongue uh, may create an airway obstruction as the epiglottis and the larynx are higher. So you've got these two big floppy structures that will just press against each other higher up. Um, Controlling the tongue with a laryngoscope aid may be difficult. And the high position of this larynx um, creates a sharp angle between the oropharynx and the glottis. 
so direct visualisation of glasses with a laryngoscope is difficult. It may be easier to use a straight blade rather than a curved blade. So that's just airway. Now let's go on to breathing. So breathing, let's think about breathing. So breathing is all about lung capacity and respiratory rate. And if you think about a child less than one, their respiratory rate is ridiculous. It's 40 resps, like 40 resps per minute can is normal, is within a normal range. And why is that? Well, two reasons. One, they have teeny tiny lungs, so that has to, um, so they don't have a lot of air in their teeny tiny lungs and two um, their metabolic demands and their oxygen consumption is just higher so for those two reasons the child is going to breathe faster uh, so let's see looking back at the book have I missed anything uh, yeah so basically the yeah i suppose another way to put that is the combination results in a very rapid fall in blood oxygen levels in a respiratory compromise so um they need oxygen they can't live without it um they can't do well without yeah, even for small amounts of time rather so the tidal volume uh, the spontaneous tidal volume stays constant throughout our lives at between four to six mils per kilo uh, and you can quantitatively assess auscultation of the chest um, good air entry in the upper and lower zones of the chest will give you a good idea about tidal volume so the mechanics of breathing so as we age our mechanics of breathing um, change so we know that we have cartilage rather than bone in our thorax um, and we know that our uh, intercostal muscles are relatively ineffective when, we, when we're ineffective when we're young so the main driving force of respiration in an infant is a diaphragm. So the diaphragm has to contract and flatten or relax and dome, contract into the abdomen or relax and dome. So any impedance um, uh, for the diaphragm is going to cause problems. Impedance can be a full um, gastric content, um, an obstruction. Um, and also if you think about impedance on the way out, so secretions, uh, bronchiolithitis, uh, yeah, so let's make sure I haven't missed anything. Yeah, so just going over it, the infant has ribs that are cartilaginous and pliable and uh, intercostal muscles are weak and ineffective. Diaphragm's the main inspiration, descends towards the abdomen, generating a negative pressure drawing air into the upper airways and lungs. Uh, and we talked about the mechanical impedance. And we talked about ineffective ventilation as uh, obstruction of the airway, so bronchiolitis, asthma, or foreign body aspiration. Okay, yeah, we covered it. In older children, uh, the intercostal muscles contribute to the mechanisms of breathing as the ribs ossify. In children, right, so this is the thing, in children above five years old, so five and up, if you see the presence of significant intercostal recession, you should consider that this is an ominous sign and indicative of serious respiratory compromise. There is something bad going on, they're going to decompensate, so be aware of that, help them out, oxygen, 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 um, crash trolley nearby. So respiratory rate, um, we talked about this uh, so 
it's rapid it, because of their high metabolic rate and their oxygen consumption and their carbon dioxide production. So it has to go for those reasons. That's all high. Um, it also increases with agitation and anxiety uh, and in the presence of fever. Therefore, serial respiratory rates are more useful than a single value. So if you've got a child who's coming with a fever and their respirate's high, if you control the fever, their respirate will go down. That's a helpful thing to know when you work in paediatrics. So now onto circulation. So tiny little volumes um, as an infant. So we know that stroke volume times heart rate equals cardiac output and their heart rate is newborns 140. Um, so, excuse me. The circulating volume of a newborn uh, is around 80 mils per kilogram and decreases to about 70 in adulthood. This means that the total circulating volume of any infant is small. So less than a can of Coke, 240 mils for a newborn um, and a newborn being approximately 3 kilos, a one-year-old being approximately 10 kilos and a six-month-year-old weighing, say, 6 kilos would have uh, 500 mils or 480, 500 mils circulating volumes and nothing so basically relatively small losses can be a significant percentage of their total circulation volume uh, so di minor diarrhea illnesses can cause uh, morbidity and even mortality in young infants which is a bit scary isn't it so let's go to heart rate so that's circulation in general heart rate we talked about stroke volume uh, cardiac output is relatively relative to body weight so and it's higher stroke volume. Cardiac output is relatively relative to body weight and is higher than any other stage of life. So 300 mils per kilogram per minute, decreasing to 100 mils per kilogram per minute in adolescents. And then 18 adults. Cardiac output is the product of yeah stroke volume times heart rate, which we know. And that's why. Um, children have to have a high heart rate to maintain that 300 mils per kilogram per minute. Okay, last page. It's a bit long, this one. So bradycardia in a child needs to be taken seriously because you, you're, you're going to lose the output. Um... And there's just a note on systemic vascular resistance, i.e. blood pressure, um, which I'm not going to commit to memory. So disability is your GCS. I'm sure we'll have go through the child GCS, but AVPU is your initial measure of it. Um, also, know that children regress into younger ages or seemingly younger ages. Um, so when they're in pain or when they're anxious... Uh, therefore consider getting a parent involved, someone that the child knows to help, basically. Um, exposure, yeah, strip the child down, you know, maintaining dignity and body warmth um, as well. And then basically last thing on weight, because your drug doses and your resuscitation volumes are going to be based on weight. Um, quick calculation is age plus four times two. So uh, let's do a four-year-old child will be 
plus 4, which is 8 times 2 is 16, so that's 16 kilograms. Okay, that's the end of chapter 1. Chapter 2 of Paediatric Intermediate Life Support is Recognition of a Seriously Ill Child. Uh, it's quite a long chapter and I've decided not to abbreviate all of it. Um, there's just a couple of... Th because most of it is very similar to adults. Um, except when things go wrong in children, it tends to be pre-terminal events. So, for example... Um, exhaustion. So... The fact that they're not in respiratory distress can be pre-terminal. Central cyanosis often is a late sign unless a child is profoundly anemic. Uh, Tachypneic, more than 60 per min. Um, for a newborn, a heart rate of less than 100 is bad. Um, for a child up until the age of one, a heart rate of more than 180 or less than 80 is bad. Um, and um, for after one year old, if a heart rate is more than 160 or less than 60, so 100 for a newborn, 180 and 80, less than one, uh, 160 and 60, more than one, uh, seizures, uh, bradycardia. We've just said that, tachypnea, tachycardia, being peripherally shut down. I think that stood out for me was um, in an infant, a urine output of two mils per kg per hour, um, and then a slightly older child, of one mil per kg. So two mils in infants, and then one mil per kg in children older than one year. Um, is what you want to show that there isn't like circulatory compromise. Um, and then what was the other thing that stood out? Oh yeah, AFPU score. If you're having to apply pressure for that child to respond, then you can give the score of GCS eight. And finally, I never got taught this before, but. That's why I want to do it now. Um, posturing. Seriously ill children become hypotonic and floppy. However, there is if there is serious brain dysfunction, stiff posturing may be demonstrated. The posturing, which may only be evident when a painful stimulant is applied, can be decorticate. So that's your boxer, decorticate. Flexed arms and extended legs, so it's like a boxer position. Decorticate. Is there a boxer beginning with D that's famous? DC. Oh, they're both 40. 40. Well, Barry McGuigan was short, so, and Corti is Italian for short, so let's say Barry McGuigan is decorticate. And decerebrate is extended arms and legs. Uh, it's both signs of raised intracranial pressure bleeds, I guess. Okay, um, now we're moving on to basic life support, chapter three. 
Okay, paediatric life support, uh, chapter three. We're doing basic life support now. And um, I thought the introduction was really good because um, it really just grounds uh, what basic life support is um, and important for paediatrics because the protocol is different. It's to define what a child is. Um, so uh, age definitions for the purposes of basic life support. An infant is a baby less than a year. And a child is more than a year up until puberty. And um, before you would get into the semantics of puberty, um, you don't have to check for puberty. You just, it's basically the rescuer thinks the victim is a child, then do paediatric guidelines. If the rescuer thinks the child, the victim is an adult, then it's adult guidelines. So basic life support is a combination of manoeuvres and skills without the use of technical adjuncts. So it provides a recognition and management of a child in cardiac or respiratory arrest and buys time um, until he can receive advanced treatment. Um, having said that, if oxygen is available, put oxygen on. Um, it just improves outcomes. And the pattern is, if you think in your head to any basic life support situation, is you see someone on the ground or in bed unresponsive you shout for help you open the airway you clear the airway that might um, remove the problem um, but if the person's still not breathing then five rescue breaths um, if still no signs of life 15 chest compressions and then it's 15 to 2 um, call resus team one minute CPR first if, alone, and if you're alone and you don't have help you can do one minute of CPR first and then go get help. Uh, so you're on your own, shout for help, not breathing, you open the airway, there's nothing to remove, patient's not breathing, five rescue breaths, still no signs of laugh, life, um, just crack on 15 chest compressions, then two to 15 for a minute, um, and then call the recess team. If you obviously, if you're, not alone, someone else goes and does that straight away. Uh, so that's that. So in my head, I see someone out unresponsive. You call for help. Um, you open the airway. There's nothing in it or you remove whatever's in it. There's still no signs of life because if they come alive, you don't need to do anything. So you give, give five rescue becks, breaths, still nothing then 15 compressions and then it's 2 to 15 for a minute um, if you're on your own go get help at that point that's it chapter 5 um, on the pills course advanced management of circulation and drugs um, we're really talking about fluid resuscitation in the first few pages and uh, something that I may not remember is the fluid volume so um, let's recap by um, doing the rough calculation of a child's weight so it's going to be their age plus four times two so for a, for example a seven-year-old child will be seven plus four which is eleven times two so that'd be twenty two kilos and um if you suspect their cardio their cardiac collapse cardi uh is due to hypervolemia status like sepsis anaphylaxis or um bleeding out then you will give them twenty meals per keg as a bolus so the bolus is twenty meals per keg 
if in a child in trauma, um, I suppose bleeding can go into that, so be cautious. If a child's experienced trauma or you suspect cardiogenic shock, i.e. their heart can't expand, then it's a bolus of 10 mils per keg and it's always saline or hypertonic solutions and that's basically the take home message from that. Okay, let's talk about adrenaline. Um, in chapter five of the pills manual, they talk about uh, four drugs, adrenaline, amiodarone, sodium bicarbonate and atropine. But in actual fact, the only one that's um, in the guidelines, or the only two is adrenaline and amiodarone, sodium bicarb rarely used and atropine rarely used. So I'm not really too bothered about those for this course. Um, so adrenaline, we all know that we give one in 10,000 adrenaline in adults. It's the same in children in cardiac arrest situations. So um, if a child is in cardiac arrest, remember it's um, A, B, C, D, and this is C. So airway is patent, ventilation is being taken care of, hopefully at this stage via a definitive airway, and chest compressions is the first part of your circulation management. Now we can, in the cases where and now we can look to using adrenaline if, um, you know, there's no ROSC. So um, you will use adrenaline um, differently depending on the rhythm strip. So in a non-shockable rhythm, which is asystole or pulseless electrical activity, you will use adrenaline straight away. Um, in a shockable rhythm, so pulseless VT or VF, then you're going to use it after the third shock. Uh, so the dosage so other indications first of all so cardiorespiratory arrest is the obvious one that we train for the next one is bradycardia in children less than 60 beats per minute um, with decompensated circulatory shock after the initial steps have been taken to restore satisfactorily oxygenation and ventilation um, and hypotension with anaphylaxis you're giving it um, the only difference though is in anaphylaxis we give one in a thousand in adults but it's not saying that here so adrenaline in children is one in 10,000 and the dose is 0.1 mils per kg 0.1 mils per kg so let's do a calculation of a six-year-old child so six plus four is 10 times 2 is 20 so we've got a 20 milligram child so that's um, 0 0.1 mils per kg so that's 2 mils of 1 in 10,000 you give 2 mils of 1 in 10,000 um, and you repeat that every 3 to 5 minutes so that's really it so let's move on to amiodarone which doesn't work in my dad Oh, I forget that bit, but um, amiodarone. This is, you use this if um, your rhythm strip is saying persistent VF despite shocks, etc. So a refractory VF um, or refractory pulseless VT. If VF or VT persists after the third defib, a dose of amiodarone should be given with the adrenaline. It can be repeated after the fifth shock. Um, if defibrillation is unsuccessful, so five, the dose is five milligrams per kilogram. I'm not going to get weighed down with the pharmacology here, so it's five milligrams per kilogram. Um, so in my 
20 kilogram child, five mix per kg. It's gonna be a hundred milligrams, isn't it? Um, okay. So that's really it on the drugs, thanks. Um, chapter six is about recognizing rhythm. So there is a special addendum here with children. Um, uh, you it can intervene um, with chest compressions in a child with a pulse. So in adults, you would never ever do that. But in children, if their heart rate um, blows, falls below 60, infants or children falls below 60, then you can start compressions. Um, because that rhythm, I guess that rhythm, that heart rate is not compatible with life. Uh, so a rule of thumb uh, to determine in an emergency situation whether a child is bradycardic or tachycardic. So an infant is deemed oh, bradycardic with a heart rate less than 80 or tachycardic if a heart rate above 180. And a child, which is above a year, is deemed uh, bradycardic if it's less than 60 or tachycardic more than 160. So that's a nice rule of thumb. But in either eventuality, once that heart rate falls below 60, you are starting chest compression. So remember that a bradycardic child, their cause is nearly always hypoxia. Um, so you need to restore the oxygen and then the bradycardia might resolve. But if you've got a child where their airway is patent, their oxygenation is taken care of, um, and they're still brady, then and they're not in AV block, um, then it's appropriate to start compressions. So let's just read the section here because it will be good to recap it. So... Bradycardia may be due to hypoxia, due to hypoxia, acidosis or respiratory or circulatory failure and it may be a preterminal event prior to cardiorespiratory arrest. So I guess that's why you jump in before the preterminal event happens. A bradycardic child with signs of decompensation or a child with rapidly dropping heart rate associated with poor systemic perfusion requires immediate oxygenation. Airway opening, 100% oxygen administration and positive pressure ventilation as necessary. If the heart rate remains at less than 60, and that is all ages, uh, and the child has decompensated circulatory failure, chest compressions must also be started. The cause of bradycardia must be sought and treatment directed to the underlying cause. By far, the commonest cause of bradycardia in infants and children are hypoxia and vagal stimulation. Less commonly is hypothermia and hypoglycemia but they can cause slow conduction through cardiac tissues and result in bradycardia. Infants and children with a history of heart surgery are at increased risk of sick sinus syndrome or heart block, secondary to injury to the AV node or other parts of the conducting system. So atropine is indicated when increased vasal tone is the cause of bradycardia. So when your vagus is overstimulating the SA node or the AV node, um, it's causing a real slowdown, um, then you can block the vagal that block those sites with atropine. Um, things that cause that is induced by tracheal intubation or suctioning. Did not know that. Otherwise, adrenaline is the medication of choice, and we know that's 0.1 mil per keg of one in 10,000. 
so adrenaline is the medication of choice, but only once oxygenation has been restored and the heart rate remains less than 60 with circulatory failure. The signs of circulatory failure in a child's blood pressure is unreliable. Ready pulse, cold peripheries, slow central refill time, I guess. Um, so, blah, 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 60. Very occasionally, a child with congenital heart disease, bradycardia is due to complete heart block and emergency cardiac pacing is required. Pacing is not indicated in children with bradycardia, secondary to hypoxia, ischemia, or myocardial insult, or respiratory failure. Okay, that's fine. So that's bradycardia for you. Um, chapter 6, a little note about SVT in children. Um, so remember assessing um, a tachycardia. So this is essentially about tachycardias in children. They're either going to be broad complex or narrow complex. Narrow complex, you're really talking about um, sinus tachy, aren't you? Um, but if there's an absence of P waves um, or if it's really regular or if it's an abrupt onset or they've known to have SVT, um, or they're decompensating with it. No, that's not really true. Um, forget that last one. Um, then if they're above 220 beats per minute in a infant or more than 180 beats per minute in a child, then um, it's likely to be SVT. If it's less than 220 in an infant or less than 180 in a child, then it's um, likely to be sinus tachy. Um, especially if it's gradual in onset, the child's pyrexic, the child's sick, etc. So you've got to make that differentiation. Now we all know then the next most important thing is, is the child stable or unstable? Are they decompensated or compensated? Are they hemodynamically unstable or are they hemodynamically stable? They are all the same ways, the same, much the same thing. Um, so in a child with a compensated then you've got some bit of time just to get your experts down on side um if they're decompensating then something kind of needs to be done so as you know it's vasovagal maneuvers and then chemically chemically cardioverting them and then um electrically cardioverting them so let's just quickly go through this uh so svt is the most common cardiac arrhythmia observed in children it is paroxysmal, regular, usually narrow. It's usually because of a re-entry mechanism through the, an accessory pathway like the bundle of Kent or the atrioventricular conductance system. A heart rate of more than 220 in infants or than 180 in children is highly suggestive of SVT. Other features is in a table. I'll take a photo of it. Management of SVT. Once a diagnosis is made, the clinical status um, should be determined. For management, as described previously, compensated circulatory status should be referred to an expert. They may suggest vasovagal maneuvers be performed as stimulation of the vagus nerve allows, may slow the AV conduction system. Vagal maneuvers blow into a straw, blow into a syringe. Adenosine is the next step if that's failed. Um, if intravascular access is already established in a conscious child with a compensated SVT chemical cardioversion with adenosine may be possible. Adenosine should be given rapidly through a vein close to the heart um, as it's metabolized by red blood cells as soon as it enters the bloodstream. A rapid volus of 0.1 mg per kg. So for my 10, 20 kilogram child, that's going to be two mils. Um, 
and then you've got to flush it through fast. So a bolus of 0.1 megs per keg should be followed by a flush of 2 to 5 milligrams of 0.9 saline. If the dose is ineffective, it can be doubled. The maximum dose um, Sorry, I'm losing rapid. If the dose is ineffective, it can be doubled to 0.2 mg per kg. The maximum dose is 6 mg for the first attempt and 12 for the second caution. Adenosine can participate in bronchospasms, so don't give it to asthmatics or use with caution in asthmatics. Um, it can cause an unpleasant feeling of doom. So it needs to be given under guidance. So that's it. That's it for chapter six. Good chapter. Chapter seven, defibrillation. This is just a note um, on the obvious, but sometimes you just kind of forget. And also in a emergency situation, it needs to be kind of crystal. So um, defibrillation is a general term used for both asynchronous and synchronized um, cardioversion. Um, the big factor is do they have output do they have a pulse if they don't have a pulse they're dead it doesn't matter you can just give an asynchronized um, shock um, because you need to deliver it fast you know time to line it up and all the rest of it just do it now if they've got an output that means they're alive um, and you don't want to turn someone's SVT into VT so it should be synchronized synchronization or cardioversion being um, that the shock will be measured and synchronised with the R wave because there is an output we can detect the R wave, the R wave being the depolarization of the ventricles so it will be synchronised with that so that's uh, when you use either or um, so an unstable child with VT or SVT then you're going to use a synchronised sh shock hopefully with a bit of midazolam you might even intubate them um, anaesthetize them rather uh, which may require intubation but you know what I mean so that's a little bit on defibrillation so chapter 7 a note on um, defibrillators so we know we've got the manual one which are preferred if you're a trained professional you should be using a manual one um, they're just more versatile um, they allow you to do synchronize and non-synchronize shocks they like allow you to interpret rhythm really quickly um, without having to wait um, uh, so they're just generally better in the hands of a professional um, but a note on um, joules so if, you, if it's manual then you're going to be picking the energy levels that you're going to deploy um, four joules per kilogram in children so if you're doing a asynchronized defibrillation in an unconscious child unconscious in a dead child with no cardiac output and then it's four joules per kilogram. If you have turned your manual defibrillator to synchronized, this is gonna line up with the R wave, um, and you only need to use one joule per kilogram. If the arrhythmia persists, then you use two joules per kilogram. So that's the difference. Um, and just make sure it is unsynchronized and um, between shocks it may reset so you need to turn it back to synchronized um, all that said and all that being well if you're with an, a dead child um, and all you have is an AED um, 
then you can just use adult doses. Um, I think that's the general gist. They're saying, you know, be cautious, blah, blah, blah. But at the end of the day, if it's last chance saloon, um, they have been used and they've been used without causing significant um, you know, complications post defibrillation. Okay, that's it on energy levels. Okay, chapter eight is like a summary of everything we've been through. And I think um, I'm going to go through the um, algorithms uh, to finish with. Um, the final two chapters are, I'll tell you what they are. Uh, so chapter... 10 um, is non-technical skills in resuscitation and chapter 9 is post-resuscitation care uh, stabilization and transfer uh, which is once the emergency both of those are once the emergency is over and I feel for the purposes of the courses while they are very important um, actually it's chapters 1 to 8 that we will be um, given lectures on, taken through, and potentially, I think, given a questionnaire on. Uh, so let's just focus on the first eight chapters. So this is the final podcast. Uh, so let's quickly go through basic life support, having read one to eight now. Um, so you see an unresponsive child, you shout for help. If you're alone, you're going to be doing everything, including one minute of CPR alone before you do anything else while continually shouting for help um and this is before even if you've got a mobile phone um you just do the first minute it just improves outcomes for that child so unresponsive child stop and shout for help open the airway we might solve the problem there there might be a foreign body we remove remember we do not blind sweep in children because they have below the ages of six months they have a funnel shaped uh, or a pharynx, uh, larynx, and things get stuck in it, and they'll be very difficult to retrieve. So unless you can see and are confident you can get the object out, then don't bother. Um, you might not have suction on you, but if you do, use it. Um, and then you look, are they breathing normally? Brilliant. If they are, um, then we can put them on their side and get help. Um, if they're not breathing normally, we give five rescue breaths. Nice long breaths over the space of a few seconds and then you look for signs of life. So if you look signs of life essentially means is there a cardiac output? Um, you can the qualified person can check for a cardiac output, but if you're not qualified or your heart's beating really fast and you know you're on your own and you're stressed, um, then things that you're looking for are um, coughing, moving, verbalizing, um, maybe even color change. Um, uh, but if you are fancy having a go, then in an infant, you'll be looking for a pulse in the femoral artery or the brachial artery. In a child, you can do femoral and carotid like you do in adults. But if, there are, if there's no cardiac output and that child is unresponsive or they have an inadequate cardiac output, that means for all children and infants less than 60 beats per minute, you are getting on the chest and you're going to be delivering 15 compressions. Before we go on to the CPR element, I want to stop, start. Now, let's say they do have an output above 60 beats per minute. You don't need chest compressions. So what you need to do is continue to deliver ventilation. And you deliver ventilation 
at the rate of 10 and 12, between 10 and 12 breaths per minute, okay? Um, so even once health arrives, even once your bag valve masking them, um, it's 10 to 12 breaths a minute. If you get a ROSC, if you get, um, oh, what am I talking about? Cancel, I just said, sorry. Um, in, a, in, a, in a cardiac arrest, you give 10 to 12. Um, if you get ROSC, um, you can increase that to between 12 and 20. So if they're not responsive um, and there's no signs of life, it's 10 to 12, yeah. And then when you get ROSC, you can increase that to up to 20. Um, but anyway, you're going to be delivering, um, if you do have um, output, I may just, yeah, and if you do have output, then you're jumping on the chest. You're not, if you don't have output, you're jumping on the chest and then it's two to 15. Um, and then I suppose within a minute you can deliver a couple rounds of those up to probably about three rounds of those. And then you, you can leave the child or carry the child to, to try and get help. So that's basic life support. Mm. We didn't really talk much about choking. Um, and then we go on to the next stage. So you've, um, that's airway and breathing is ba basic life support, isn't it? Um, and then you can get um, definitive airways in place or um, LMAs or nasopharyngeals, oropharyngeals um, as equipment and expertise arrives. But when you move on to circulation, um, you're looking at getting access um, so it's probably going to be interosseous access in a shutdown child because um, it's quicker um, and chances are it's going to be more successful um, and you can deliver high volume fluids and you're less likely to lose um, access um, but then you're also going to be assessing rhythm and then it really is just the same as that for an adult so PEA or asystole you're going to um, be doing continuous CPR and you are and the child is being ventilated at the head end so you have continuous uninterrupted CPR changing um, provider as you get tired and then giving adrenaline every other cycle um, remember it's um, the adrenaline is 0 0.1 mils Per kilogram or 100 mics per kilogram same dose um with the shockable rhythms you're going to deliver a full joule remember a full joule shock if it was synchronized it would be one joule and then up to two joules um but a four this is four joules per kilogram that is um so depending on what age your child is and then after the third shock you are giving your first dose of adrenaline and your first dose of amiodarone and remember amiodarone is five milligrams per keg okay so um and then you just keep going around like that and then you're going to be considering your reversible and uh, causes remember that essentially it's hypoxia hypoxia makes children go into cardiac arrest except in children that are post thoracic cardiac thoracic surgery or that have congenital heart diseases or have an acquired heart disease in hospital or maybe a renal disease that's knocked their heart out so um, but by and large we're dealing with hypoxia and it will have been a very steady decline into a cardiac arrest situation but you do have to keep the and 
75% of them are going to be PEA or assistedly. Um, but there is that 25 to 27% that will have a arrhythmia. So it's important to be able to um, manage that arrhythmia um, and know what you need to do. We talked about SVT earlier. Um, but you impulseless VT, you are shocking. In VF, you are shocking. Um, and if in doubt, if you're unable to read the rhythm, you're not sure whether it's VF, um, then just continue with chest compressions until you're sure. Um, don't shock unless you're sure, because high quality chest compressions um, outweigh you basically fanning about coming off the chest, trying to deliver shocks. If, if it isn't a shock of rhythm, you're wasting everyone's time, um, is the take home message, I think, from chapter eight. Uh, so I've just come back to uh, that confusion I had about how many breaths. I mean, this is real fine points. Um, you can just say 12 breaths per minute regardless. But um, here's the paragraph. Once the child's trachea has been intubated and compressions are uninterrupted, use a ventilation rate of 10 to 12 per minute. Okay, so they're, you're breathing for them, so they're not breathing. Um, but once Rosk has returned, you can up that to 12 to 20. I think that's what I said. And put up, put on an entitled CO2 monitor uh, capnography, as it's otherwise known. Uh, so that's really it. I'm going to stop there. Um, is there any parting wisdom? No. Uh, so sorry about the confusion with the breaths. It was real minutia that I got caught up in them. But um, yeah, the end of pills.